Uh, we are walking through uh, the book of Psalms in the Bible. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to open up there. We're going to be in a handful of different places. So uh, get your fingers in the pages, get your bookmarks ready to go. Uh, we've been here for about six weeks, and we've been taking a, something of a snapshot of the book, dropping in, in, in from place to place just to, to see uh, what we can learn and how we can learn to pray from the Psalms. And there are six different types of psalms or categories of psalms that we are looking at in this series. And we began uh, week one with the wisdom psalms. We started at, at Psalm 1. It seems like a good place to start at the beginning. And we were challenged by this category of wisdom psalms and, and Psalm 1 specifically to be, uh, to be creatures of the word. To, to uh, work through the Bible, to, to, to want to uh, let the truths of the Bible and the Psalms just sort of rattle through our minds and be, be present and be available to us, uh, help us to, to memorize them. Uh, we looked at, at Psalm 1 as wisdom as well as a beatitude because we, it opens up, Psalm 1 opens up with, blessed is the one who goes on, right? And talks about that. So this is, this is a way to get the instructions on how to find and have that blessed life. That life that has, uh, has meaning, is fulfilling, and, and has purpose. We learned that wisdom is delighting in the instruction or the teaching of the Lord and dwelling on it day and night. So the, that, that series of Psalms challenged us to, to, to spend time in the, in the Bible, but in the Psalms, so that those words would be in our minds and would, would come to us when we need them. The second type of Psalm we looked at was the hymn or the, the Psalm of Praise, and there's about 30 of them, so a 30 of 150 is a pretty significant portion. And the hymns all started out with some sort of a praise the Lord, praise the Lord, a praise His name, and directing us at God, uh, reminding us that, that of all the things God has done for us. But then they went on to speak about why we should praise the Lord. And that is really critical. Uh, You can show up at a church and be told, you should do this, praise the Lord. But if you don't have a good reason why, then you're like, well, I'd also like to do these other things. But this collection of Psalms reminds us of who God is and what He's done, of His character that never changes, of the way He worked through the people of Israel and continues to work today. And so we praise the Lord because He is just, because He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, because He is faithful, because He is righteous, because He has shown Himself to be true and that He never changes. These hymns help us to elevate our view of God. And give us reasons, lots of reasons that we can store away in our minds of why we should praise the Lord. The next week we looked at the lament psalms, the opposite on the emotional spectrum. There's 60 or so, maybe more, depending on how you classify some of them. And that that more than a third of the book of Psalms falls into this category brings me great comfort. Because these are the psalms that are filled with despair. These are the ones that are, that are downcast. There's hopelessness in them. And that's the human condition, isn't it? That's, that's real life. I don't know about you, but if I showed up at, at a gathering and people said, well, we should be happy because God says we should be happy. And so be happy. And it's like, well, that doesn't ring true. Right? I can look at the last couple of weeks of my life and there are some significant moments that we're not happy This world is broken, and so we can cling to these 60 plus psalms and and have permission to come to God and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does it seem like you're so far from me? God, my soul feels like it's broken. What's going on, and where are you in this? 
the beauty of these psalms is, is even though in, in so many of those, that's how we start this hopelessness and despair. In all but one, and we looked at that one, Psalm 88, a little closer, but in all but one, they wind up, but I will praise you, but you are still good. And so in the midst of, 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 a, of a world that's, that's broken, where there's pain and suffering and things don't make sense, there's still a God who is sovereign and in control, and he wants us to bring our emotions to him. And that, I don't know about you, but that brings me great comfort. Last week, uh, as Vern mentioned, Steve was here and he did a, a, went through the Thanksgiving Psalms for us. He did a great job reminding us that it was great to come out of lament and into Thanksgiving. I think that even in those hard times, there is something to be thankful for. Sometimes it's harder to look for, but there's always something. And I, as I listened to his sermon that was recorded, I was uh, encouraged uh, by the story he told as, as chaplain of the, the men's bobsled team in, in 20, uh, 2010, home Olympics in Vancouver. The team was the two-man team. They were on track to, be, to win or second, like the runs of their lives. And in and, and heat four, or three, sorry, heat three of four, they crashed, right? Olympic dreams shattered. But because this driver had this relationship with Steve, uh, and I, I don't know where he's at with God, but he showed gratitude and thankfulness. When he was interviewed uh, by CBC as they were coming off, he said, I just wanted to crawl into the sled and let someone carry the sled back to the, to the dugout so I wouldn't have to see anyone. But he said he got to the bottom and said, you know what? The brakeman's wife had a baby today, so we're thankful for that. We're going to go celebrate that. Olympic dreams are ruined, but here's something to be thankful for. He also noted, and I mentioned this to him last night, that he said, usually when you bring in a guest speaker, you give the guest speaker the hard topics, but Thanksgiving and thankfulness is easy, so I'm going to really tune him up for next time. <laughs> Our last two types are the, the Royal Psalms and the Justice Psalms, and we'll look at those this week and in a couple weeks. And so I hope this, this journey through the Psalms has been helpful for you. I know it has been for me as, as I've I spent more time uh, in the Psalms than uh, in a while, I suppose. And, and I've enjoyed kind of letting the words soak into me and finding, finding these words that I can turn back to God as well. So this morning, let's talk about the Royal Psalms. And the big idea here, what we're hopefully going to come away with at the end of the next uh, little while here is that in the Psalms, we find this category, these royal ones that we can be sort of subdivided into royal and messianic Psalms. They point us forward to Jesus prophetically. The Psalms can point us forward to Jesus prophetically. Now, this is a smaller category. There's only 10 or so psalms that would fit here, but there is some overlap with the other, uh, other genres as well, as we will find out. And in this group, we find songs that were written about an earthly king or, or written by an earthly king. Lots of them are said, you know, written a psalm of David. But they also sing and tell us about God's kingship as well. These psalms, uh, they call on God to protect his anointed one which we'll come back to that phrase in a little bit. They call on God to protect his chosen king in Jerusalem and, and give the king victory, as in Psalm 20. Uh, Psalm 21, another example, is a response to God delivering his people. And so the king is happy, he's been delivered, so the king trusts God again and praises him for that. Psalm 45 was likely used at a wedding of one of Israel's kings, maybe Solomon's wedding. A couple more, 89 and, and 132, are about God's covenant, God's relationship with King David and his lineage to follow. 
Then within this category too, there's another maybe more significant collection of these psalms that actually celebrate God's kingly rule among his people. Uh, Some examples are Psalm 47 and 93 and 96 through 99. And so if we... uh, consider a little bit of a history lesson here. If we think of the history of Israel, they were to be a theocracy. Now, in Canada, we're a democracy, so rule by the people. A theocracy comes from theos, a Greek word for God, so ruled by God. They were to have God be their ruler, their king. And for much of the first seven books of the Old Testament, we see this relationship in place, strained at times, uh, for better or for worse. It's there, though. And in fact, in the book of Judges, in that seventh book of the Old Testament, Gideon, one of the judges, actually refused to become king. He said in Judges 8, listen, I'm not going to rule over you. My sons aren't going to rule over you because God will rule over you. He was bringing them back to that. No, God is our king. God is our leader. We don't want to be like the other nations that have kings. They recognized, he recognized, and others recognized the danger of having an earthly king. It would would be a temptation for the people to look to that man to lead them. And for that person, that king, to say, I'm going to lead us. As opposed to letting God be supreme king. Now, if we track a little further in Israel's history, we know that eventually in 1 Samuel, we read the people demanded a king. And they got Saul, and they got David, and the line of kings went on from there. So these psalms, they refer to the earthly king. They're often about that earthly king, but they also point to the great king, God himself as well. Some examples, Psalm 47, verse 2. For the Lord, the most high is to be feared, the great king over all the earth. They, they sing that, that he reigns over all the earth, and so we should praise God. A little bit later in Psalm 47, verse 6. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is king of all the earth. Sing a praise with a psalm. We are to worship God because he's, he's king over all the other gods. And Psalm 95 and 97 talk about that. And we are to sing praises to God because he rules the earth with strength and justice. Psalm 99 verse 4 says, The king in his might loves justice. You've established equity and you've executed justice and righteousness in Jacob, in the people of Israel. And so they're reminding us that God is a holy and almighty king. And so we should worship him as such. So we've got these royal psalms. They deal with kingship. They deal with with sovereignty, with being in control. Now, uh, maybe back to a little bit of history. In ancient Israel, when a king was named, he was anointed with oil. And this was a way to symbolize that, that God had chosen this man for a task. And so because of that, when these psalms were pointed towards that king, they referred to the anointed one, the one anointed to be king. Well, the word anointed one in Hebrew is Messiah, which is super interesting, isn't it? So we've already talked about how many of these royal psalms sort of had a a double application of that anointed earthly king, but also to God as king. But then there's a collection of these that, that talk about both a historical king, maybe David as he wrote it, or someone wrote about them, but also look further to this anointed promised one who would come, the future king, the Messiah, Jesus. 
And so whenever we come to our Old Testaments, when we open up our Bible and are reading in the Old Testament, when we come with it with our current 21st century New Testament eyes, because we've seen Jesus, because we have the Gospels, and we've seen his life, his death, his, his ministry, his resurrection, we need to be careful that we don't go back to our Old Testament and just shove Jesus into every verse. We can't say that just because there's a bush by a, a, a creek here, well, that's Jesus and the creek is something else about the Holy Spirit or whatever. But remember, though, as we do look back at the Old Testament, as we consider Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, uh, remember in Luke's biography, Jesus lived, he did his ministry, he was uh, arrested and crucified and died and raised again, and then he appeared a couple of times, didn't he? And we have a couple of these instances recorded. And the first one, I, I love Psalm, uh, sorry, Luke 24, where Jesus just sort of appears on the road next to a couple of disciples who are going for a stroll and just coyly asks, hey guys, what's going on? What's, what, what were you talking about here? And they're blown away. Like, how could you ask this question? Everybody for miles knows that there was this person. We thought he might be the chosen one of God, the Messiah, and they crucified him. And now the women are saying he's not in the grave anymore. Something's going, how could you not have heard this? And we read in verse 27 that Jesus says to them, uh, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, which would be the Old Testament at that point, right? All the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So we have this, this moment where he's engaging with these two disciples on the road. And then later in, the, in chapter 24, Luke 24, He's sitting around the table with his disciples as well. And in verse 44, Luke records for us, Jesus said to them, Hey, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he's there. We don't, have, we don't need to shoehorn him in there. He's there. That, by the way, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, that's the whole Old Testament. I appreciate how one writer put it, if Jesus said the Psalms were about him, then his presence shouldn't have to be forced, nor should it have to be like finding a needle in a haystack. So let's approach our Old Testament, not forcing Jesus into every story, nor completely omitting that he is actually foreshadowed in every place right from Genesis 3.15 onwards. And so what we're doing when we interpret the Bible this way is we're doing some hermeneutics, which is a fancy word for interpreting, is we're using the Christocentric lens, which is a bird, a big word meaning Christ-centered lens. And so we take that, and that's the, the approach that, that all of Scripture has Jesus as his central theme. One of the phrases we've used around here for a while is that every story whispers his name. And so we can look at these royal psalms and we can, we can look at these messianic psalms that, that are prophesying Jesus coming, written a thousand years before he did come, because these ones were not forcing Jesus into this category. They're actually about him. They're specifically and directly addressing the subject of God's chosen one, the Messiah. They have Christ as their theme. They're announcing the nature of his role, what he would do, and their primary focus is announcing he's coming. So let's look at a couple of examples of these uh, Messiah Psalms. Psalm 2, we'll start there. If you want to flip there with me, we'll just kind of jump through it really quick. Now, at the beginning of Psalm 2, we don't have an author listed there, but it's actually quoted in Acts 4, and the apostles attribute it to David, the earthly king. 
And so as king of Israel, David would have had opposition. There would have been people, as we, again, read our Old Testaments, we know there were people both inside Israel and outside Israel that were against him. And so he would have been writing this from his own perspective, again, with that double meaning as well. So let's look at them super quick. Verse 1 to 3 talks about this, this turbulence as the nations are conspiring against who? The Lord and his anointed. Again, remember, Saul was anointed king. David was anointed king. And so we've got that connection that, that these, the nations are rallying against David as the anointed one. But remember, the anointed one, that word is Messiah. And so there's a warning as well of looking forward to the nations rallying against God's anointed one, Jesus. Verse 4 and 5, the scene shifts to the psalmist speaking about the Lord. And, and one of the goals of this series that we've walked through is, is to learn how we can pray through the psalms. And look what we can learn from these verses. Amidst the turmoil, amidst the plotting, God's still on his throne. And what does he do when he hears of these plans about him? He sits in the heavens and he laughs. Really? Really? And why does he laugh? Because... He's on his throne. He's in control. Christ is already king. Charles Spurgeon, uh, who's known as the Prince of Preacher, probably for quotes like this, said that what they, the nations, are proposing, God has disposed the matter. His will is done, and man's frets and raves are in vain. God's anointed is appointed and shall not be disappointed. I like that. I'm going to keep that one. The psalm continues, and then the anointed one speaks in verse 7 to 9. And in, and in verse 8, he says, Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. And so now we're starting to get, David never got that, right? So we're beyond the work of David here, and we're starting to get this, this messianic picture that at some point, all nations, Jews and Gentiles, will be led by an heir of the, the David's line, by, by Jesus, to faith in God. And then this psalm wraps up as the psalmist speaks to those rulers who are plotting against God. And and maybe we could say speaks to us as we consider uh, going against God as well. He gives us a bunch of advice and, and urges us to submit to God. In verse 10 he says, be wise. Think these things out. Do you realize you're trying to go against a holy almighty God? Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear. means a worship God. Recognize his greatness and bow down in awe before him. Verse 11, rejoice with trembling, means that in submitting to God, we will find our true happiness, we'll find our true joy. Often we think maybe that following God is a miserable thing, He's just given us this big giant list of rules, and how are we going to keep them all organized and safe uh, together, but this is the greatest joy we can ever have. Verse 11 says, kiss the Son, means showing homage and affection to Him. Stop hating God's king and start loving him and following him. And then look how it ends. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We've gone right back to another beatitude, haven't we? These Psalms are just loaded with stuff. There's wisdom there. If you want to find meaning and purpose and, and your identity in your life, take refuge in him. Another example, Psalm 111. We'll move through this one quick. Let me read it for you. It won't be on the screen, so if you want to flip there. Psalm 111 reads this way. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over you, rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle. 
In holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever, according to the, the pattern or the line of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. And he will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. We said in this series that the Psalms are the most quoted book in the New Testament. And of the 150 Psalms, actually, this is the most quoted one. It's 27 or so different places. We find it in the Gospels. We find it in Acts. We find it in Paul's letters and Hebrews and in Peter's letters as well. And as we read that text, this psalm goes way beyond what any earthly king did in Israel. And so it's pointing us forward to a time when God's chosen one, God's Messiah will come and judgment will come. Now, remember as well that the psalm book, the book of Psalms, was the worship manual, was the hymnal, if you will, for the Jewish people. And so these would shape their gatherings, these songs. And so they would sing these songs to remind each other of things. And so one writer notes that when the people of God, when the Jewish people would would sing this psalm in faith, they would do a handful of things. They would celebrate God's promises and His promises through David, that, that from David's line would come the anointed Messiah one, the anointed one, the Messiah. They would, they would celebrate God's promises through David, and they would also yearn for the day when the nations would come, when the non-Jews would receive the light, which we just read in Psalm 2 is what the Messiah was coming to do. And finally, they would sing this song. They'd celebrate God's promises to them as a people. They'd, they'd long for the day when, when everyone would, would be able to grasp who God is and what He's done, and they would pray that they would be able to be faithful in their calling to be God's people until that day. Matthew Henry wrote that this Psalm 110 is pure gospel. It's only and wholly concerning Christ, the Messiah, promised to the fathers and expected by them. And so we can learn to pray similarly from a psalm like this, that we can celebrate God's word and his work and his promises to us and his, his work through Jesus for us. We can pray for those around us who need the light of the gospel. And we can pray that we too would stay true to our calling as followers of Jesus. One last example. We can flip back nearer to the beginning to Psalm 22. And I can hear some of the gears turning that we're here a couple weeks ago. Sean, you said 22 was a lament. What are you doing here this morning? Well, great catch. Some of these Psalms are in multiple categories. We can find bits of them in different places. But remember, the big idea today was that the Psalms point us towards Jesus prophetically. So we can find him here. We can have these things written a thousand years before he came that say, that describe his work, his ministry to us. And so when we look at a Psalm like Psalm 22 and see that it was written by David, there's nothing in David's life that would make him write this from his own experience, which is really one of the amazing things about how we got our Bible, that the Spirit would actually guide these authors to write these things that, I mean, a thousand years before, he's prophesying the crucifixion here, right? One writer said, there's no other psalm fitted quite so aptly to the circumstances of Jesus at his crucifixion. Hence, at the cross, Jesus took this psalm to his lips. And the gospel writers, especially Matthew and John, frequently alluded to it in their accounts of Christ's passions, the the crucifixion. They saw in the passion of Jesus the fulfillment of this cry of the righteous sufferer. 
So we want to dig into this psalm a little bit to see how it points to Jesus and so, and then what we can kind of learn to, to pray through that from that. And I'm helped by a commentator, Roger Ellsworth, here. If we look at Psalm 22, we can see it breaks actually quite nicely into two sections. The first piece is verse 1 through 21, but the first half of verse 21, and it describes the experience of the cross or the, the description of the crucifixion. And then the second half from the, the second bit of verse 21 to the end talks about kind of the results of the crucifixion. What happened because of the crucifixion or what was accomplished through the crucifixion. So let's look at these two parts. First, the experience of the chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah on the cross. And again, uh, there's no doubt in the first part of Psalm 22 that the crucifixion is in view here because the words Jesus spoke from the cross are here. Right? Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 15, my tongue sticks to my jaws, gives us this image that sounds a lot like I thirst, Jesus said from the cross in John 19. The very last words of the psalm, verse 32, it says, he has done it, sound a lot like it is finished in John 19.30. So the words Jesus spoke are right here for us. The reason Jesus was on the cross is here as well. It's amazing to me, verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 22, My God, why are you so far from me? Why have you forsaken me? And verse 3 starts with what? But you are holy. That's, that's a crazy move. That's like opposite ends of the spectrum there. And so we read, read that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For an, an obvious reason. He was forsaken. He was separated from God while he was on the cross. And so we ought to ask, why? Why did this happen? We know that he was forsaken because he was taking the place of sinners. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5 that he who knew no sin took on the sin of the world. Jesus took our rebellion took our unbelief, took our sin on him, and he was paying the penalty for that. The penalty for sin is is God-forsakenness. It's being separated from God. And so in order for Jesus to to, to pay the penalty for our sin, he had to be forsaken. He had to be separated from God in that moment. And I'm not sure that we will ever have a really great, full grasp of of everything that was going on in that moment on the cross for Jesus. But at that time, Jesus, who had lived a perfect life to that point, bore on his person the entirety of the wrath of God. What, What our sin, our rebellion cost, landed on Jesus in that moment. And so even though he was infinite, Jesus is infinite, for a finite moment he was separated and suffered from God. What we ought to suffer because of our sin. Eternity, one writer said, was compressed on him in that moment. The other thing we see here is that the sufferings Jesus endured on the cross are here in Psalm 22. If we compare verses 6 and 7 with Matthew 27, you'll see how close they are. Uh, Psalm 22, David writes, But I'm a worm and no man, a reproach of men despised by people. Those who see me ridicule me. They, they shoot out the lip. They shake their heads saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in the Lord. In Matthew 27, we read this. Likewise, the chief priest also, mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Can he not save himself? 
If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe him. He trusted in God. Let God deliver him if he will have him. For this man has said, I am the son of God. Man, it's right there. Interestingly as well, the word pierced shows up in Psalm 22, even though it was written long before crucifixion had been invented and adopted as a means of execution. And Psalm 22 also notes the dividing of garments, which we read about in Matthew 27. The other thing we see is that those who crucified Jesus are here in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 contains hints of the involvement of the Romans. In verse 16, we read the, the word dogs there, which is what the Jewish, how the Jewish people refer to Gentiles. And the Jews are there. The congregation, the assembly of verse 16 might refer to the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, who are at the cross. But as well, we see God there. In verse 15, we read, You have brought me the dust of death. And this is actually what the rest of Scripture bears out for us as well. Paul says that God set forth, that God gave His Son as a propitiation, as a a payment for our sins in Romans 3. Later in Romans 8, Paul writes that, that it was God who refused to spare His Son, but rather God delivered Him up for us all. It was God who was, was pleased to bruise the Lord Jesus and put Him to grief in Isaiah 53. So it was God who put Jesus on the cross. But we also see in this psalm the results the Messiah's exaltation in the cross. Again, it's amazing if we read Psalm 22 from start to finish. We've got this, God, why have you forsaken me? I'm abandoned. I'm scorned. All this stuff is going on. And in verse 22, 7, 22b, there's this sudden shift. He says, but you have rescued me. And all of a sudden, the darkness lifts and sunshine starts to beam through. The storm of wrath is gone and, and, and a, a peace and a calm settles in. The rest of the psalm, it's, it's, it's the Messiah rejoicing that his death was not in vain, but rather something was achieved. There was a purpose fulfilled by this death on the cross. And so as we continue to read through the, the end of Psalm 22, because of the death of the Messiah, we see that he now has brothers in verse 22 to whom the, Lord, the name of the Lord can be declared. And the writer of Hebrews picks this up in Hebrews chapter 2 as well, starting at verse 10. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source of their salvation perfect through suffering. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That's why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns of you to the congregation. And there's that Psalm 22 quote. A little bit later, in verse 26, because of his death on the cross, the Messiah rejoices that that those who didn't know him are now able to to eat and be satisfied. This is a picture of of sinners coming to know the crucified Redeemer. Because of his death, they can enjoy a gospel feast and be satisfied in the knowledge that their sins are forgiven, and they can therefore stand in the presence of a holy God. He also rejoices that all the ends of the earth will be turning towards him. The Messiah's death on the cross wasn't just for one nation, wasn't just for a certain number of people at a certain time, but it's for all nations. And as we go to the end of the Bible in Revelation 5, we read about this gathering, this this gathering of the multitude in Revelation 5, 9, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. In verse 27, the Messiah rejoices further that uh, the fact that his death will issue a final vindication for God. He says, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. Again, this brings 
to mind for us the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, where he says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those, on heaven, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Finally, the Messiah rejoices in the knowledge that a, a, a posterity will serve him. Every generation will have those who followed him and who he purchased with his own blood to tell the next generation following what he's done. And so what we see from this psalm, it's pointing us forward in anticipation for Jesus' coming. And we see that Jesus didn't just die on the cross with his fingers crossed, hoping that maybe this sacrifice was enough. But rather, he knew this was the way. We can learn that this psalm, written a thousand years before the crucifixion, describes for us that that this was the plan from the beginning. This was the way that the Father and the Son had said, this is what it's going to take to rescue and redeem our people. The cross was adopted in eternity past as, our, as the rescue mission, as the way that God can bring us back to Him. It was announced in Eden in, in Genesis 3.15, we see that the, the serpent will strike his heel, but he will crush his head. And we keep looking forward to that point from there. And Psalm 22 reveals that the, the cross was the plan, and even when it looked like everything was off the rails, cross was the plan. So how can we pray through these royal psalms? How can we learn to uh, take comfort in them? Well, if the cross was always the plan, we can thank God that he's in control. Even when those around us plot around us, even when the thing, the world around us seems to be falling apart, even when it seems like there is nothing left that's good, when that diagnosis comes, when the bills stack up, when the kids act out or whatever else when when it seems like god is far we can think of psalms like this and say no god's still in control and we can thank him for that we can pray through these royal psalms and this one psalm 22 especially we can thank jesus for his work on the cross not that we hope it was good enough for us but that it was good enough and one day we will be with that multitude singing praises to him and we can celebrate jesus saving work in our lives as well Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Psalms. Thank you for these words that have been preserved for us for thousands of years. Thank you that we can look through this book, the book of the Psalms, and we can see that it points to you. We can see that it points to Jesus coming. Jesus, thank you that you did come. Thank you that you lived the perfect life that that we were designed to live, created to live, but can't. And that you went to the cross, forsaken by God, separated from God. And even though you lived a perfect life and and, and related perfectly to God and creation and others, as our example, you went to the cross and you took my sin, my unbelief, my distrust, all of our sin, all of our unbelief, and you were separated from God in that moment so that you could later rise from the grave, conquering Satan's sin and death, and we can cling to your right work that draws us to you and and, and brings us back into the family. Your rescue mission allows us to be adopted as sons and daughters of the great King. And so we thank you for that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.